Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Friday, March 11th, as we head into March break weekend. Well, more on mask mandates, but this time not from Ontario, from British Columbia. But why is the reaction different? Why aren't many people pointing and calling BC reckless and irresponsible and politically motivated? Why is that not happening? We'll delve into some of those concepts. Uh, Of course, as well, we'll talk about baseball with Rob Longley from the Toronto Sun. If you missed it, MLB and the players got a deal done. And there will be a full 162-game season with opening night Friday, April 8th. Blue Jays, Rangers. We all can't wait to be back at Rogers Center. It's going to be a great next couple months for sports in the city of Toronto, and we'll address that amongst other things. We talk Sesame Street, the passing of an icon in Luis, the actor that played Luis passing away at age 81. So we've got some Sesame Street memories amongst the show to wrap it up. Toronto Today for a Friday begins now. I'll get to masks in a second um, because a lot happened yesterday, to be perfectly honest, and not even necessarily in Ontario. So I will get to that. But let me start with uh, where Russia and Ukraine are at. Um, Just harrowing audio. There was a five and a half minute BBC report. And if you didn't see it yesterday, it will absolutely. um, I don't know if it'll bust you up because the concept is, well, the good guys are winning. The underdogs are holding strong. And I don't know it. You know, there's certainly as I said it yesterday, and I didn't mean to uh, for it to be misunderstood, but I meant what I said. There's propaganda on the Ukraine side. They want you to think things are going a certain way, and they very well may be. There, I mean, there is certainly a selling of how the war is going on both sides. Did you? Did we not watch coverage from Iraq on U.S. television from 2003 till 2008? Depended what network you were on, but some people said. It's going pretty good. Let's get that mission accomplished banner right up there. And other networks were saying, I don't know. Um, (laughs) The Iraqis may not want to be governed by the United States. This may be a people that isn't ready for democracy. They're not Russia in 1989. They don't want to buy blue jeans and go uh, get McNuggets Happy Meals. Maybe that's the case. And uh, it turned out it was more the latter than the former. This audio is rather amazing, and I'm going to get to it in a little bit, but John Avalon is the CNN foreign policy expert. He's sometimes on Bill Maher, and you'll recognize his voice if you watch Real Time with Bill Maher, because sometimes he's been on. He makes a fantastic point, a fantastic point about how some underestimated at the start of this world war what it meant for us. I think, I think a lot of us knew it was big, and I always say this about, I think, our radio station, our show, our listeners not just in the morning, but uh, if you're here already, you're in a higher percentile of knowing and caring. You are. You don't have to agree with everything I say, Kelly says, Alex says, John Oakley's. You don't have to agree with us all the time. We probably couldn't get in a room and all agree on each other about things, and that's the beauty of what we do, and that's the beauty of talk radio. But Avalon makes the point there were a lot of people just sort of shrugging their shoulders saying, what's this have to do with me? And I think if you put gas in your car, by the way, hope you waited yesterday, 15 cents lower today. Price went down at midnight last night. We told you that would happen on yesterday's show. That's why you listen. John Avalon makes the point that an awful lot of people had a little bit of an awakening, a little bit of an awakening the last two weeks as to why foreign policy really matters. I think people are waking up to realize that actually foreign policy is not something you can just dismiss as someone else's problem. You know, all the apologists and the people... um, sort of talking about the need for peace and buying into the moral relativism with Putin's threats of aggression, I think have been um, 
have been have been somewhat silenced by the savagery of, of this attack. And I think it's resonating in the United States in part because all those Cold War synapses that have been dormant for a really long time are, are reawakening. And of course, it's a history that goes back to the Second World War and the peace that America and its allies helped secure through the creation of NATO, through the Marshall Plan. And all of a sudden, that, that liberal international order uh, is being directly threatened. And the implications for the trajectory of the 21st century are huge. Feels that way. It absolutely feels that way. And you're seeing it split again. Yeah. Is it getting split among liberal and conservative uh, television coverage lines in the United States and, and maybe elsewhere in Europe? Yeah, I would say that that's true. I, I would absolutely say that's true. But it's very accurate to look at where the status of this is and say uh, it matters. It matters at the gas pump. It's going to matter when it comes to our immigration. It's going to matter if you want to travel anywhere in Europe and Again, most of the fighting um, in the last 150 years when there's been a world conflict has been over there and not over here. To be honest, that's why 9-11 hit so very terribly hard in our souls. And I was living in the States at the time. And my sister was living in New York City at the time. So we had a lot of emotion in our family, a lot of, a lot of things to pick up the pieces about. But it, it was it was the most massive terrorist attack in war and, and part of aggression and, and I'm not saying anything matches it that's happened in uh, in the last five, six years in Europe. The Bataclan attacks were pretty, pretty awful. It wasn't planes flying into buildings for that drama and the buildup and the imagery, but it was unbelievably frightening. And there have been terrorist attacks in France constantly. When I went to France in 2016 for the Euros, you were happy to see uh, army personnel in on streets with in full body armor and massive machine guns it made you feel safer not less safe more safe and there's going to be some question as to uh where the russians go with this because they're not doing well they let a bbc re reporter uh ukraine uh, some ukrainian soldiers let a bbc reporter in bed with them this is part of the five and a half minutes i talked about i watched it last night i showed it to my wife it was harrowing and and it ends basically the story ends the the video ends with Russian soldiers, all they go to a gas station and there might be 12 Russian soldiers and they show the bodies without showing the faces and showing the graphics, but you see their green uniforms, their dark green uh, camouflage uniforms. There's a couple here, there's a couple over by this pump, a couple over by the entrance, a couple over by the, where, the, where the shot, like this could be any gas station that you go to later this morning, that you go to later this afternoon along the 401. Here's some of the audio, and here's, I think this is really telling, the Ukrainian soldiers saying they're going to fight like lions, and they're not going to lose. How are the Russians fighting? They're fighting like soldiers of 1941. Uh, they attacking just like in front. Now they don't do any maneuvers, so... Yeah, they have a lot of people, have a lot of ta tanks, a lot of their vehicles and techniques, but uh, we fight in our land, and uh, we protect our families, so... It doesn't matter how they fight. We fight like lions and they won't win. So here at least, the Russian advance is frozen. In a petrol station forecourt, a dozen Russian dead. The bodies, we are told, will be left to the dogs. They're leaving the Russian bodies, quote, to the dogs. Think about that. And what are they supposed to do? Have, have a burial for people that were trying to kill them? Honor, uh, honor the corpses. There's 12 corpses in a gas station parking lot. And if that's symb um, symptomatic 
of what's happening all over this. It's a big country. against 44 million people. I know it's nothing's nothing's as big as, as Canada, but Ukraine is bigger geographically than Ontario. Imagine that all over our province and 44 million people in uh, in that area, not 15 million people. It's rather remarkable. So this may be over the next few days, and we kind of documented this yesterday, with all the harm done by Vladimir Putin here, there's no way back to the to the uh, to the graces of of the world leaders. No way back to be invited to the G7, G20. It's over. He leaves, and Bill Browder has told us this before. Who uh, whose lawyer was murdered by Putin? He leaves on a stretcher. He leaves with ill health. He leaves dead. He leaves as the result of a coup, and I don't see that happening anytime soon. I think anybody that thinks someone's going to knife him from behind at a at a staff meeting on a Friday afternoon, it ain't going to happen. I know <laughs> it's not it's not going to happen. But they're going to be isolated from world trade. Their economy is destroyed. The ruble is worthless. They spent two and a half decades building up to this, gaining economically, becoming a world power again, and in two weeks, two weeks. It's gone. It's gone. Let me switch to this. Uh, in British Columbia, you may have seen, uh, well, first of all, Wednesday was all the fuss here about the mask, and it's an important issue, and it's an emotional issue, and we talked about it with you, and uh, the mask mandate will lift, and a lot of people documented the importance of, well, should it still be in schools? And I'm going to get to some of the uh, school boards debating uh, this last night. But in British Columbia yesterday, where Bonnie Henry is the chief medical officer of health and has gotten praised constantly by people, well, on the left, on the center, and even on the right. They've praised her for her pragmatism, praised her for being able to keep schools open, praised her for not closing small businesses. She decided to drop the mask mandate. Where's all Ontario's uh, yelling doctors? All the people that want to blame and shame, all the people that want to take uh, the moral upside, that think they're standing on a bigger hill. And it's it's kind of it's it is a hill because it's their pile of money. Where are all the doctors that were uh, throwing the toys out of the playpen on Thursday, on Wednesday, rather, where are they excoriating Bonnie Henry? I didn't see it. I didn't say I'm not. I mean, that alone doesn't make them hypocrites. That alone doesn't do it. But Bonnie Henry uh, yesterday described what was going to happen here. Masks won't be required in most settings. They'll drop the vaccine passports on April 8th. That's a conversation, too. The vax passports could have gone on a little longer. I don't see the purpose of them, but we're playing this game here where uh, we're acting like if you if you decide, hey, my fully my two times vaccinated 16 year old can sit in a school classroom where he eats lunch and where mass compliance is sort of sketchy and dodgy to begin with. We're playing this game where him taking it off is somehow um, that means I don't know COVID's not over. And I do. I'm very conscious of it. OK, I have a father in law in a long term care home. I'm very conscious of COVID policies. OK, um, I'm, my parents are in their mid 70s. They've been rattled dramatically by all of this. They won't live normal existences again for a while, if ever. And yet you've got people suggesting that just Taking that step forward, having done all the right things, all the heavy lifting that we've done emotionally, somehow you're reckless, you're irresponsible. I heard a little bit of this with uh, uh, Dr. Abdu Shark uh, Sharkawi yesterday on Kelly Couture. And Kelly, by the way, 
full credit, rightly called him on it. Here's uh, Dr. Sharkawi playing this, uh, playing the line like, again, like, what's the rush here? This was from uh, the Kelly Contreras show yesterday in the nine o'clock hour. Why don't mm-hmm. we exercise just a little bit of patience and say, let's get more vaccine coverage into our vulnerable populations, into younger people. Let's try and keep a few checks and balances in place. But right now, it feels like it's spring break early and Mardi Gras, and we're simply, you know, opening the floodgates and saying, okay, hey, Mardi Gras, Mardi Gras might be a bit of a, uh, an exaggeration because, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I don't think we're there yet. Good for Kelly. And then the doctor starts to laugh because he knows how ridiculous the comparison and the analogy sounds. He knows how overblown and dramatic. I mean, the Oscars are in two weeks, but it was a wonderful attempt. It really was. This is also a doctor that tweeted in early January. First day of virtual school in Ontario 2022. Wishing every child, teacher, fellow parents the best under these very tough circumstances. Education is a right. Special shout out to all the single moms. You redefine heroism. You deserve better. That single mom wanted their kid to go to school. That single mom wanted the schools to be open. This doctor wanted them closed, and he didn't even want them open on January 17th or 19th. So uh, spare the speech. You don't get to stand on a soapbox at this point in time. Not on March 10th, not on March 11th. And Mardi Gras, as I documented, are my parents living Mardi Gras right now? Is my father-in-law in in long-term care living Mardi Gras? That was one. I'm going to count to 10, but I'll do it during the commercial break. Stacey Lance is an Ontario educator and is adamant that we give this a shot. And she joins me right now. You're talking to your classroom. You're talking to kids. You're in the classroom. I'm not. So I can't only say so much. Many of these doctors are not. So they can only say so much. What are kids saying about masks? So today we did have a discussion about that. And and honestly, none of the students expressed concern over the virus. It was more just having the ability to wear the mask. And so I'm trying to talk that through with them. And and I'm I'm human too. You know, when I take my mask off, I feel kind of like everyone's looking at me as well. So I think it's just going to take a week or two for everyone to sort of, you know, make their decision and see everyone around them being comfortable with it. And I, I really think we'll adjust quickly. Stacey Lance is our guest on Toronto today, uh, an Ontario-based teacher on 640 Toronto. I look at the Alberta numbers all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I There's a lot that I can't uh, defend and I couldn't endorse about um, what Jason Kenney's done. No, We've talked about before, nobody's gotten this perfect. No premier, no prime minister, right. no world leader has. But um, but he he went with it in uh, in mid-February. Uh, made the masks optional and they've had all the numbers that any kind of number that would concern anybody they've had them drop it's no guarantee Mm -hmm. but but it's a good trend line and i've had people say well but you got to understand there's a lot of kids and and teachers that are still wearing the mask and my point is but you're proving the point about the mandates that you can drop the mandate those people can still feel comfortable if they want to but the people that want to see other people's faces and want their own face to be seen. And as you know, from seeing a teacher's lips move and facial expression, watching for reading, for for comprehension, for socialization, it's so critical. So they're kind of making the point that the mandates aren't aren't as critical as, as someone had them. It's not a life or death issue. 
Right. And I, and I feel like that's something we need to dis- discuss more is this, this idea of one-sided masking, you know, make your own decision and allow those who are ready to move on. And I can tell you that even just me eating in front of the students, or if I'm far enough away and I have my mask off for a moment, they'll thank me for, for showing my face. Because I think we just progress through our days without that human interaction. When you're covering your face, you're missing that human interaction. And especially with the little guys, like my own children, and I'm noticing they're craving that smile and that warmth from their teacher that they've missed for so long. I don't even think they know what they're missing anymore. So it's really going to be interesting to see how the, the climate of the school changes once you allow people to make that decision. And that's something, too, I think as educators, we do need to remind these students that we support them, whatever their choice is. And we need to make sure that we that we are observing whether they're being kind to one another about each other's choices, because there is there is the worry of the bullying yeah. of, you know, if someone does decide to take a mask off, they don't want to get blamed for something which they've expressed to me as well. They're a bit nervous about being seen as a, you know, an anti-masker, so to speak. And I, I try to remind them we're not at the same place we were at the start of this pandemic. And and it's time we learn to kind of move on and to respect each other's choices. It's one of those scenarios where I think we look and we say um, there's two things that that get me pretty emotional about those arguments about about kids. One one is the concept that, uh, well, you know, well, my my kid is all in line with the mask and they don't want to take them off. And, And some of that, if they did that independently, fine. But if you tell a six, seven, eight year old. Hey, if you take the mask off, somebody could get really sick. Hey, if you take the mask off, someone could die. Guess what? They'll fall in line pretty fast. They don't get it. Like the world's all new to them. And this has been around since the six-year-olds were four and the five and the seven-year-olds were five. So um, I tend not to buy into too much of, of that particular, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, sell job, if you will. But I'm also, I've got empathy. I understand. I, I think I've said this before. I think confident households, create confident kids. And and I've lost my crap. I think I've told you a, a bunch of times yeah. in the last two years, but I don't want my kids seeing me do it. I, I'm going to scream into a pillow or I'll, I'll, you know, I'll punch the bedspread, but I'm not showing any sort of panic or, or sadness or anything. We have to have that front for our kids. We we're the ones that are supposed to inspire them. Exactly. And that is where my biggest concern lies is, you know, the adults in the room here, we need to, whether we have fears or not, we need to stand up tall and be exactly what these kids need to sort of let go and move on and make decisions for themselves. And the last thing they need is to feel that fear at this point. It has been two years of this heavy burden they're carrying on their backpack and they've been waiting for this day where they can put that backpack down. And they've now been told, hey, we have arrived. So we need to to put aside our own concerns and allow them to breathe now. So I know personally within the walls of my school, you know, as as educators, we've gathered and we've had these conversations knowing full well that this decision was coming down the pipeline eventually. And there are teachers here who are nervous, but they know they have they have the choice to have the N95. And we all all of us today are here having those real conversations, whether we're afraid or not, we're showing these children that we're ready. and, And I cannot I am so grateful to see that in real time because, you know, when you're on Twitter, you don't get that vibe. But teachers are doing the best they can with what they've got. And and that's exactly what these children need right now. Stacey Lance, kind of to join us, 640 Toronto on Toronto today. Um, 
I, you know, you mentioned bullying a couple uh, a, mm-hmm. a couple of minutes ago, and you mentioned the online reaction. So the province announces this, and all I saw, we talk about one-way masking, all I saw was one-way bullying. I, I was disappointed mm-hmm. when schools were closed in January, but you sort of shrug your shoulders and, and there's not a lot of emotion. You're not casting, you know, moral aspersions or judgments. I saw a lot of that from doctors yesterday. I saw a doctor at kind of infamously, I didn't want to name him on the air and I won't, but, but who put up a graphic of kids as skeletons. I I just, Mm -hmm. I think some of the stuff I've seen and I know you've had to deal with it. Some of the stuff is just really gross, really uh, once. And and it's not nuanced. And, And we've been able to have, you know, logical discussions for months on end about what should be open, what should be closed, what should we do? What about, you know, how, how do we mix all this in? And uh, and I didn't see a lot of it. I saw a lot of tantrums in the last two days about yeah. this. And I, it's disappointing. I, I agree. I think I think I've constantly said this to you, too. You know, that the kids are watching. They're watching how we're reacting. And let me tell you, I have been down and out so many times over so many decisions in this province. But no matter what, I always try to eat keep my my core values at the front of my mind and I feel like when there's something coming down on the pipeline about a decision that maybe we don't agree with we we can't just use hate to deal with that it's okay to disagree with the decision but at the end of the day I mean we're none of us are always going to be happy and as this virus changes so do we so do we we have to change how we live our lives and I I same as you I saw a lot of that yesterday I was I, I think I received a lot of hate yesterday because as an educator, you know, they, a lot of people feel anger towards me and say that I don't care about the children, but I feel like I'm trying to see the bigger picture here. But at the same time, I need to be respectful that not everyone agrees with me. So we really got to choose our words kindly and, and recognize that the children are watching our reaction. And some of the stuff, I mean, I've I've watched you had to defend. Is she really a teacher? Is she right. really an educator uh, in the classroom? And and we've seen this in the states, haven't we? There's all 50 states now have dropped their mask mandate. Mm-hmm. Hospitalizations are way down in the vast majority of states. But I've seen accusations of, well, it's it's dark money funding this. It's 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 uh, you know, it's some shadow right wing yep. groups. And I'm like uh, in California, in, in New yeah. York, in, in New York and California that vote about 70 percent Democrat. They were able to pull that off. It's pretty right. remarkable. Right. And I think that's been the whole fault to begin with is everything is made political. And it it's really skewed our perception of, of where people are coming from. We are not black and white. We we. We can hold one view and, and and hold an opposing view for something else. But in order to get to a place where we can, you know, address humanity properly, we have to understand that this doesn't have to be political. So I I feel like we've lost our kids in this mess. And and anyone who's advocated for them has, uh, you know, unfortunately been the recipient of a lot of hate because of this on, on both ends of the spectrum, I should say. I'm not just talking about one one end. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Lastly, when I when I say to you, I mean, I've got a I got an eighth grader and a 10th grader and the eighth grader Mm -hmm. obviously had his ear just blown up uh, finishing, you know, a school that uh, that I haven't even walked in. But I used to walk in all the time, obviously, for fun fairs and assemblies and whatnot. So when I hear that 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 grade eight can can potentially have a grad and and dance with a girl he likes or go up and get a, a, you know, a a diploma in eighth grade, I I just explode with joy when you hear that, too. That must make you just just elated that uh because we didn't know two months ago 
if it could happen. Like we hoped, right? We're like we're almost like slow the yeah. clocks down a little bit to make sure you give us time in May and June for for these kids to have some degree of normalcy to finish their year after two years of hell. Absolutely. I mean, being on the front line with these kids and seeing how, you know, the loss of these milestones for them has been just detrimental to their well-being. So to be able to stand before them today and say, hey, that prom we've been planning is going to happen. That graduation that we've been planning is going to happen for them. It was just such a sense of relief because they've been living every day wondering, well, when's the next shoe going to drop? So to, to know that they get these important milestones in their, their, their life. It, it means so much to me. It also makes my heart ache for, for the students who didn't. And that's something I've been struggling with, you know, watching these years go by and, and feeling their pain and witnessing it firsthand. That's why I've been speaking up. And, and so to hear that we can kind of move on from this and, and give these kids a bit of hope has just, it's kind of put life back in me because I have been, it's been exhausting, you know, trying to, trying to help them through this. I don't doubt it. And you, you've been, you've been a positive uh, uh, light force through a lot of this. And I think, I Thank think it, as well, I think we look and go, I've got friends of mine with kids that, uh, that are younger parents that, that haven't even been able to get their kids vaccinated yet. You wouldn't have been able to with, with, um, with, with yours when they were five to 11, obviously, and we weren't there yet, but, but mm -hmm. that said, like, so my empathy for them stretches a, a mile long, but I, I, the, the people that I respect the most come back to me and say, oh, your kids are older. You're going to be an empty nester in a half decade. You, you must want to get this going. So they've got that. It's about empathy at the end of the yep. day. We're all, we're all struggling here. We're all trying to make this work. We all want everybody to feel confident and, and safe and, and we'll, we'll help those along that aren't ready to do it yet. Exactly. We all need to understand that we this has not been easy for anybody. And there's no way we're getting out of this in one piece if we can't approach each other with empathy and with compassion. And it's time we return to those key elements because that's what you know makes life so enjoyable is knowing that you have others who care for you. So I think we've just gotten into a bad habit of treating each other, you know, cold and you have a disagreement, you shut down the conversation. We need to learn from each other in order to move forward for sure. Stacey Lance uh, joining us on 648 Toronto. You're one, Stacey for Premier. I know you'd have to give up uh, your summers. You don't want to do that. Do not do uh, that. Don't, yeah, don't give no. up those summer vacations. I don't want you to have to even consider <laughs> such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. I, I really don't know if politics is in my future, but um, I enjoy my time in the classroom. I will tell you that. <laughs> I, I know it's, uh, it's, 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 it shines right through. Thanks very much for spending the time with our audience as always. You're welcome. Thank you, Greg. At our box for a Friday morning, uh, we welcome in Amira El-Gawabi, human rights advocate, Jamie Ellerton, conservative strategist and principal at Canaptus PR. Amira, thank you for making time for us. We always appreciate talking to you. Always a pleasure, Greg. Thanks so much. And there's Jamie. It's great to have you as well. Yeah, my teeth are chattering looking at the snow that's fallen overnight. What is the you're right? And but again, I've said this to Amira before. People live in Ottawa. They must love the city. They must live the hustle. And forget about um, January and February. We'll we'll wipe this year from our existence, hopefully. But but spring always lasts about six weeks longer, Amira, in Ottawa. My sister's lived there for 25 years, and every year I ask her, I'm like, Are you done yet? Have you had enough? But she hasn't. Uh -oh. 
Oh yeah, I know. I don't. I don't take out my spring wardrobe and summer wardrobe <laughs> up until about end of May at this point. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I was thinking, yet. Jamie. I went to the uh, Toronto FC opener last Saturday. My teeth are chattering there and minus three, and I'm like, all these brave people in Toronto that say they want an outdoor baseball stadium. This is what the first ten games of the season would be like if there was no uh, no seventy degree temperature and no roof at Rogers Center. Seriously. <laughs> yeah, I was just saying to Shiva before we came on air. You kind of always get that like spring vibe with that tease in March, but then the snow always comes and reminds you that this is indeed here for at least another month. That's it. That's it. Um, I, w- I want to get to Bill 21, and I want to ask Amir about that, uh, and I think there's so much chatter about that in Ottawa. But, Jamie, let's let's look at this. Uh, I think we can assess now, better than we could last Friday, for sure, the cast of characters for the conservative leadership. But I think something really interesting I mentioned already um, that Althea Raj wrote about in, uh, in McLean's is the idea of almost a coalition partnership with Jean Charest and maybe on Sunday, Mayor Brampton Patrick Brown jumps into the race. This is a really intriguing thing, and I didn't know the lineage, that they go back a quarter century to when Brown was, in essence, a teenager. So they will supposedly not say a bad word about each other. It's described as a non-aggression pact. They'll publicly support each other, and each thinks the other supporters will mark the other as the second choice on the party's ranked ballots. And it's been the ranked ballots in, um, what, Bernier v. Scheer and certainly O'Toole v. McKay that that ended up making a big difference in who the leader was. Yeah, the ranked ballot works in very uh, curious ways, and so I don't think anything is uh, going to be assumed to be a a fact in this kind of race. I think there's some really big question marks. Uh, Full disclosure for your listeners, I'll be working on a a different campaign that's neither of those two, nor Pierre Polyev's. who will be coming in the race in in the days uh, ahead, and it's not Patrick Brown either. Uh, But if you look (laughs) kind of how this is uh, shaping up, obviously Pierre Polyev is uh, is the front runner. He's perceived uh, to be the most organized uh, and very much in touch with a certain activist base online uh, that's looking for a more aggressive form of what conservatism uh, looks like. Jean Charest kind of coming in, riding on this coattails and experience. Uh, if you listen to any kind of the media, I watched the thing he did with your holdings on the morning show. Uh, yeah. Yes, essentially, I've done this before. Now it's time to do it again federally. Uh, Patrick Brown, we'll see what he does. Of course, it comes to a lot of other, a lot of other baggage. And I think the weird thing coming out with that Althea Raj story is the fact that it's already so public. Uh, when you're kind of building a campaign strategy, you're going to look to how, yes, you can kind of build what your core base of support is and then also start to look as to how you're going to appeal to other members of the party who are supporting other candidates to get that down ballot support. But when you hear things like we're making a secret pact uh, and it's already being reported in the media before <laughs> the race these really kicked off, that's the kind of thing that smells of backroom politics and that kind of like old school style, frankly, PC deal making. Uh, it's kind of odious in today's conservative party. So it's a curious move out of the gate. I feel like I watched a TV chef once and someone, uh, he said, well, I've got a secret recipe for this. And the host was like, well, what is it? It's not a secret. If I tell you, like I said, you're right. It's the person's not even in the race yet. And you've got a secret pack that the three of us are discussing. That is not a secret. And the person hasn't even got into the race. Very clumsy beginning, if you ask me. Uh, yeah. Um, Bill 21, um, Amira, incredibly important uh, to people in Quebec and incredibly controversial. And Althea, by the way, uh, I'm giving her a lot this morning, but she's great, writes about this, and she describes it as a calculated bet. We have seen this, haven't we? And in 2019, a lot of criticism for all the leaders, Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh, they all got criticized for not digging in deeper and being more uh, emotional and heartfelt about Bill 21. They kind of passed it off as a Quebec issue. And that's something Quebec MPs have said 
federal party should stay out of this debate. Jean Charest looks like he wants in on this debate uh, with the uh, with the concept that he is against Bill 21. And of course, that prevents public sector workers in certain industries, teachers, police officers, whatnot, from wearing religious symbols while on the job. And it's been I think it's been the most controversial thing in Quebec in the last half decade. No, it absolutely has been. And I think it's very significant that uh, Charest is coming out against Bill 21. I think it's important for people to know. I mean, he's past premier of the province of Quebec. Um, He was actually quite involved in the initial discussions around reasonable accommodation, set up a whole task force that had recommended uh, some uh, removal of religious symbols uh, by people who had sort of what they call coercive roles, whether they were judges or what what have mm-hmm. you, but it never went as far as uh, recommending that religious uh, clothing be, you know, uh, banned from people who are teachers, as we saw, for example, the uh, the teacher in Chelsea, Quebec, who had to, you know, leave her job as a, as a teacher in a grade three classroom and caused a lot of recent controversy. So for him to, you know, to say that, you know, he's opposed to it is significant. It's symbolic. It's making, obviously, the Quebec MPs in his caucus quite nervous uh, because, uh, again, folks in Quebec just want everyone to leave them alone and be as discriminatory and racist as they want to be. Oh boy. It's clear. <laughs> it's clear. It is discriminatory and it is racist. I know. Where's the lie there? I don't, uh, I agree. And, and it's obviously, it's, yeah, there, there's jumpy is the word that it's describing Quebec MPs because they uh, they know their electorate. Um, it's, or do you want to be right or do you want to get elected? Right? Do you want to sleep well at night or do you, do you want to keep your seat? We all, every party on every side of the political spectrum uh, fights with that a little bit. Um, Amir, let me come to you on, on mass and then get Jamie's perspective perspective. So um, we saw um, the mask. I feel like I can't believe it. I I never would have said, well, this is going to get as politicized as the vaccine. Maybe more so. We feel like we're the United States about masks right now, uh, which where they were about the vaccines and we weren't. We're like, yeah, nine out of 10 of us will take it. So they're gone in B.C. now, which I found really intriguing. I saw a lot of yelling, a lot of screaming, a lot of doctors um, moralizing about this on Wednesday. But Bonnie Henry from an NDP government and and Premier Horgan out there say we're getting rid of them, too. And I heard a lot less. So I just wish this wasn't so achingly political. Um, Is there a way to look at this and go, well, if it's the same in B.C. and Ontario, maybe the metrics document that it's it's worth trying and we'll all go back. We'll all go back to a mandate if it doesn't work. I mean, I wish I could be hopeful, but when I hear, you know, folks like Dr. Peter Uni, who's, you know, the head of the Ontario Volunteer Science Table saying it's too early and other, you know, the head of, I think, Sick Kids saying not now, it's still too early, we don't have enough data, children are vulnerable, people who are immunocompromised and the elderly are still vulnerable, we're having 100 deaths a day still. Uh, that makes me really nervous and very worried about the most vulnerable in our communities. And so uh, I do find it perplexing, especially as well as you look at other jurisdictions like Denmark, which did remove masking and has had the numbers go up. Um, you know, I have friends in, in the U.S. that you mentioned, uh, you know, one of them has had COVID now, I think, four or five times. And we don't know what the long term impacts of that actually look like. So there's so many unknowns. And uh, with doctors saying we could have waited just a couple more weeks just to sort of see how the different removals of different public health restrictions would have on the numbers to sort of take it a little bit more mm. you know, slow and steady. Um, I think. I think that's really resonating with me. Uh, but I hear you what you say, you know, in the terms of the different kind of reactions to different uh, governments making this decision. I think across the board, uh, people are going to be rightfully nervous about, you know, such a quick removal of these masks. But everyone's sick of it. There's no doubt about it. But 
Mm. We just don't want to get to a point where we're kind of reversing the clock all over again, because I think people at that point will be absolutely fed up. That is Amira El Gawabi, Jamie Ellison with us as well on Chatterbox on 640 Tron. Jamie, where, where does it land for you in, uh, in, in your world, among your colleagues, among you know, older relatives? What do they say about where we should go in the next few weeks? Yeah, I think the practicality of it all is people just don't see what the point is. You go shopping at a grocery store, Costco, half the people have them around their chins, not really covering their nose. If you're actually looking at the science of this, like unless you're using a KN95 or an N95 mask, uh, which is actually then going to help spread the, the, this airborne uh, disease, these kind of cloth things that people wear uh, aren't really doing much. And so if I look at how we, where we are today with so much of the population uh, vaccinated, personally, I'm triple vaccinated. I trust the science. And if I end up do getting COVID, I've still not gotten it, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I do end up getting COVID, it's going to be mild, but not going to be at risk of hospitalization uh, or death because vaccines work. And I think a lot of people are just ready to get on with their lives. So I was actually, funny enough, this BC. I was in BC last July, at the very beginning when they lifted their mask mandate then. Uh, and what feels like no- awkward and kind of weird for like the first six hours, you then just like walk out and about and get into your second place without having to put one on. And it's like you're back to normal right away. So I think people are, are kind of fed up with this uh, and the kind of just the practical application of how poorly uh, the mask masking science has been communicated and the like prank quite frankly the shoddy quality of what most people are wearing and how they're wearing it it's uh, not making a difference let's just stop the theater yeah i think the one thing amir i think i think the point there is there there's elements of it that are theatrical yeah to, to use it to go to the bathroom at at the restaurant to use it from walking from machine to machine at the gym but those elements right in healthcare elements and i i get it also in education elements um, the, where you you kind of th- th- those are essential services I think we would document this is why we made we made it so very early days in the first four or five months of the pandemic to say well people don't have a choice but to go shopping for food people don't have a choice to go here the gym the ball game the restaurant they feel more like choices and of course there's a lot of theatrics about masks those places yeah no I, I you're absolutely right but uh, that being said we know that masking does reduce the transmission and not only uh you know yes there is some shoddy science out there i i would agree with that however it still does reduce transmission i think that's important to remember and the other thing is you know you can't help but know that when you're wearing a mask you're also super conscious of the fact that you know you've got to maintain some distance now i don't shop at costco so (laughs) i and there's a there's many reasons for that uh what jamie just said kind of reinforces it but um the point is is that it reminds people of the need for that social distancing even you know my kids are in school you know my Mm -hmm. my teenage daughter uh you know her teacher asked them in you know the 10th grade class you know how many of you are going to uh you know keep the mask off once you don't have to and only a couple said they were going to keep it off most of the class actually said they wanted to keep it on and i was surprised and the teacher was surprised Surprised, uh, according to my daughter, because you know there there's still a lot of concern around COVID. I, like it's not over. It's not over because we say it is. That's that's the refrain right now. Um, and I mm. think that you know sometimes it just feels like we're constantly being experimented on, um, and that means that I would rather be as cautious as possible. Wait things out. Wait to see how it goes. And I certainly can say for my 75 year old father, he is absolutely frightened right now. Oh yeah, my my, my parents know. in their 70s are also no doubt about it that they're gonna you go in those big box stores Amir. they my mom will be rattled by seeing other people's faces she might wear a mask i don't want to say interminably but for for months on end now and i want to support her doing that but she says well i want i want my grade eight grandson to have a dance in yeah. june like so we're we've all got these mixed emotions and conflicts about it don't we 
Yeah, no, it's it's such a difficult it's such a difficult transition point to try to get to some kind of normalcy. Um, and I think what it's, I don't know how the uh, the leaders and elected leaders are going to message this because I think we have to be prepared. We have to be prepared for the possibility of another variant. We have to be prepared for things, you know, going backwards. And uh, I think the fear is that if we run too quickly ahead, we're going to sprain ourselves and we're going to hurt ourselves. And mm. and the most vulnerable in our society are the ones who are going to feel this. And I think you know that balancing act is so important. And I just keep listening to the science. And I and I have heard. I think we've all heard at least in Ontario that we're moving just a tad too fast and we really do need a little bit more data before we can have you know more confidence in in this decision yeah we sure know how to go backwards we've, we've had to do we had to do that a few times and and uh fingers crossed that we don't uh jamie amira thank you very much have a great weekend loved having you both on today you guys are a great pair <laughs> great. Good weekend, guys. uh jamie ellerton amira el gawabi on chatterbox they got it done yesterday. Major League Baseball and their players agreed to a five-year collective bargaining agreement. Oh, they'll get 162 games in. Nobody saw the agreement coming. Nobody saw games put back on the schedule, but they're going to do some creative scheduling. Um, the season ends October 2nd with a three-game series against the Red Sox. Not those guys. And um, just for uh, posterity's sake, the Jays obviously haven't had a real opening day, a real one, since 2019. And that was March 28, 2019. I don't even want to read you the lineup. Um, but Brandon Drury, Rowdy Telez, and Freddie Galvis were in the starting lineup. And Marcus Stroman was the starting pitcher. What's he doing now? I don't know. We're all blocked on Twitter. I've never tweeted at Marcus Stroman, but he's, he's one of those search your name guys. Search your own name guy. That's Marcus Stroman. Um, Rob Longley is not that. Rob Longley joins us from the uh, Toronto Sun, covers the Blue Jays. He's been writing extensively about these labor agreements uh, since he got back from the Winter Olympics in Beijing, China. So yesterday, you wake up yesterday morning on Thursday, Rob. There's no way you think a deal is getting done by the end of Thursday night. No. You know, I've tried to be sort of like a a glass half full optimist through all of this and you know, if you're a fan of baseball, you certainly got your hopes up too many times before yesterday to think that they're actually going to get this done. And and even if they were, were going to get something done this week, you, you were pretty much convinced that there's no way it was going to be for a full 162-game season. And as Rob Manfred said uh, later in the day, that's the art of collective bargaining. And I, I guess he's right. It was pretty frustrating if you're you're a fan or anybody who cares about baseball trying to follow this through all that stuff. Opening day then, uh, Friday night, April 8th. Um, so we're talking uh, four weeks from tonight against the Texas Rangers, 7-0-7. Quick three-game series, then they go to the Bronx and play the Yankees. I, I mentioned that opening day in 2019. I'm, I'm at that game, and that feels forever ago. That that was the Raptors and Kawhi Leonard hadn't even started the playoffs that year yet. But it, it I don't know that we know, do we, what kind of appetite Toronto has in terms of like guessing how good the team is. It looks like it will be as good as last year, but guessing attendance cycles. It's just we don't have the kind of metrics that every other team in the major leagues does. And you live this covering them in Buffalo, covering them in Dunedin because they've been a traveling circus for two years. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that all plays out, Greg, because as you mentioned, that that was the last true home game this team had. I believe they lost that game 2 nothing, and that was the first of 95 losses that season. <laughs> So, you know, I mean, in terms of the rebuild, um, that was rock bottom year. And, 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 and in terms of play on the field since then, we've seen, seen nothing but positives in the turnaround. Um, fans have been disengaged with the ability to see them in person, but they certainly have been engaged uh, in, in following this team. And, and I think probably 
pretty darn excited uh, to see to see what this group is capable of with with Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette um, embarking on their you know second full season in in, in the majors. Uh, but how that translates into, into ticket sales, we'll 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 have to sort of wait and see because as you know, April tends to be sort of slow in that department anyway. I would expect to get a good 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 crowds that first uh, series, uh, especially given that it's on a weekend, but. Uh, we'll see how that plays out the rest of the month. I'm, uh, I'm sure the uh, success of the local hockey team might have something to do with it as well. It, it always seems to. And you mentioned 2019. They started slow out of the gate. A little bit of a burst. I remember the Friday that they called Vladimir Guerrero Jr. up and people were excited. That was really early. But but think about the Raptors as well. That was eight and a half, nine weeks of Raptors, Raptors, Raptors. You couldn't even. I'm obviously doing a different uh, job and show then in the morning. But you could barely wedge in the Blue Jays because it was so Raptors crazy. The Jays can say they want success for the other for the winter teams, but they love it when the spotlight's on them too. And and it wasn't that year until around July, really. Yeah, and there's going to be a spotlight on this team this year for sure. I mean, they have a fairly uh, stout schedule early on. They get a lot of good teams they play through the month of April, and there's expectations with this team now. They won 91 times last year, and they spent a, a bunch of money in the off season. Um, you know, it'll, all it'll take is about a four-game losing streak, and people will be calling for manager Charlie Montoyo's head. So uh, people are expecting this team to be competitive right now. Um, so the spotlight's going to be much brighter than it was uh, at any time under the current regime, I think, and, and certainly much more brighter than it was in 2019. Rob Longley's joining us from the Toronto Sun on Toronto today. The Blue Jays are back. Major League Baseball signs a deal last night, opening night for the Blue Jays against Marcus Semien. Everybody remembers him and the Texas Rangers on uh, Friday, April the 8th. When when the Jays come back, when the when they came back last summer, we all were anticipating it. They they were playing in front of, I think, in middle of August, but they were playing in front of 15,000. Then that was allowed to be 30,000, then a full stadium. You watch that sort of, you know, meteoric rise of crowds and the atmosphere. And I, I think people got more comfortable post-COVID going. For a lot of people, Rob, that was probably... Um, because that was probably their first big event with with a crowd around them, indoors or outdoors, because the roof was closed for the, that last week uh, week of week of games. Yeah, I think so, and, and you know, I think it'll be um, there's going to certainly be a different feel to it uh, this time around. I, I stumbled across something the other day. Um, it's been it's coming up on a thousand days since the Jays had played in front of a crowd of thirty thousand or more at the Rogers Center. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. Um, but I, 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 to your point, I think fans are probably going to be a little bit more comfortable, um, with, with going to the ballpark now, uh, you know, things are certainly easing up and people are getting used to doing normal things again, which will certainly play into it. And, um, you know, once we get through April and that roof starts to, to be open, I think it'll be a, a pleasant place to go again, especially if the team is, is having some success on the field. I think a big thing as well in the city, um, and, and I, I think you know we broaden this out, make it more macro here for for businesses around Rogers Center for for merchandise sales. That's the one big thing I thought of is we've all been stuck at home. We watched them play games. I mean, you've been traveling with the team at Chunk, so you've been at spring trainings and you were at games in Dundee and Buffalo. I got to think merch sales like you don't just go buy a you know a Marcus Semien shirt or a Vladimir Guerrero jersey to wear it in your in your basement or your living room with your family members. You you wear it to go out to the bar or go to the – I can't imagine how merch sales have suffered for this team for two and a half years now. Yeah, probably more so than any team in, in baseball. Yeah. yeah. Well, obviously more so, right? Um, and, and, you know, it's sort of a credit – a bit of a credit to the ownership that they've continued to, to spend uh, throughout the pandemic because there's no team that's suffered financially more than the Blue Jays d- during the past two years. Um 
I, I guess they were able to convince uh, convince ownership that you know they've already started to, to 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 rebuild and they've already got so much potential and spent so much money that you can't stop now. But this is more so than any team in Major League Baseball. This is a team that, that could start using some of those revenues coming back. And I think we're going to see it in all the things you mentioned, beer sales, uh, merchandise sales, and, and probably in ticket sales as well, especially if they get off to a decent start. Big picture, when we talk about the ranking of the teams, I know there's a lot of people that when the Raptors won, uh, I, I couldn't believe the, the interest, obviously. But I do wonder, No, nobody wants to classify that as, as bandwagon. That's often a criticism. That's just... That's just how it goes. I've I, I've seen it in other cities. You've seen it in NFL cities. All of a sudden, everybody's a, an LA Rams fan and out in LA. But if they were seven and nine, they wouldn't care about them. So, how would you would you still say universally? Is this a Leafs town first? Is it is it are the Jays and Raptors really butting heads to be the second most popular team here behind the Maple Leafs? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. And it you know it's it, it's it, it's interesting. It would be interesting to to see how you decide which is number two because. If you go by TV ratings, it's it's clearly the Blue Jays. Yeah. But the difficulty with that, of course, is that uh, those numbers are national, as, as they are for a lot of the Raptors games as well. But my sense is that the Jays really have a strong coast-to-coast following, and that and that's kind of been their bread and butter over the past five or six years. And and they've clearly marketed towards that. And uh, the, the club has a has a really good thing going uh, in terms of their their they have the best local ratings in all of Major League Baseball. Like. If, if the Yankees get 500,000 viewers for, a, for a, yeah. uh, a regional game on the Yes Network, they send out a press release celebrating it. That would be a, uh, an off night for, for, for Rogers Sportsnet with, with the Blue Jays. It's, I mean, they've got a really good thing going, and, and I think in terms of pure popularity numbers-wise, they're, they're pro- it's probably bigger than the Raptors right now. Uh, why don't you weigh in um, on your uh, China Olympics experience? You're out of China now, so you can safely uh, talk about it. Uh, what, what was the uh, the 24, 25 day uh, journey like for you? It was an interesting experience. Basically, uh, I saw Beijing through a through a bus window. Uh, um, <laughs> the Olympic experience itself was was similar to to others that I've been to. Um, you know, a hotel to media center to venue, and 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 the games unfolded quite smoothly in that regard, but. You really, especially once you got a week or two into it, you really got tired of not being able to uh, to see the city and enjoy some of the culture. That the Beijing is a pretty spectacular city, and I found myself every day on a bus ride to the media center. I'd, I'd see a new restaurant or a new bar. That I said, "Man, I wish I, <laughs> I wish I could have got out there to, to to experience it." So, so it was, you know, event-wise, it was pretty good. I spent a lot of time following the women's hockey team, so I was on a good story, which was great. But, you were, you were, well, those both of those games, even the even the round yeah. robin game was a phenomenal first period uh, with great goaltending, obviously by by Canada. Have you ever? Could you imagine the lack of buzz for the men's games? None, right? Like not not even comparable to South Korea. And I, I don't know if the NHL sits there and says, "Well, we had games to make up," but. Given that it went, I don't know, quote, fairly well, end quote, I wonder if the NHL has any regrets not going. Yeah, I don't know how you could say it went fairly well. <laughs> well, I mean, well, I mean lack, of, lack of positive tests, right? We, you know, anybody well, who yeah, prognosticated, yeah. well, there's going to be athletes taken away to, uh, you know, to yeah. COVID camps, that wasn't going to happen. Yeah, I, I, hockey, men's hockey specifically, it was dreadful. It was impossible to watch. I mean, every game may as well have been two to one. It was you know, whoever got the lucky bounce or, the, or didn't give up the bad goal was going to win. And I think, you know, the uh, the IIHF and, and the IOC have to figure out something to get men's hockey more prominent at the Olympics. Because it's been eight years since we've had best on best now. And 2018 wasn't very good, but 2022 was dreadful. 
Terrible stuff. Uh, they got to they got to get this right for uh, Italy and, and get the NHL players back there. Nothing else is going to uh, suffice at this point in time. Rob, great chatting with you, man. Uh, thanks. Uh, glad you made it back and, and glad you're uh, uh, settled in and you got a long, uh, exciting season of Blue Jays baseball uh, to cover. Thanks so much for making the time. My pleasure. Anytime, Greg. Rob Longley, Toronto Sun. Oh, gosh. I mean, you're going to... This is not... I don't want to cry at the end of the week. I don't... I don't want to get emotional. Uh, you got it's like uh, what's a Cuba Gooding Jr.'s Rod Tidwell when he cries at the end of Jerry Maguire. <laughs> You're not going to make me cry, Roy. Um, the uh, Sesame Street universe mourning the loss of Luis is it, an icon, right? He was Emilio Delgado. Now I wouldn't have known if he was alive or not. I'll say that, but awful. 81 years old. He'd recently been in hospice care. Um, I've I've known a couple people who've suffered from multiple myeloma, um, a horrifying blood cancer. It's a really hard cancer to beat, and he was diagnosed in December 2020, so deep into the pandemic. But he worked right up until the pandemic. He was in theater. You imagine, Gordon Sheba, you imagine going to a play in New York, and you'd be like, it's Luis on stage. Like, that would have been the coolest. That would have been awesome. Amazing, amazing. I love what he said in 2020. He told a Houston newspaper, this is what he said. For the first time on television, they showed Latinos as real human beings. We weren't dope addicts. We weren't maids or prostitutes. And on Sesame Street, there were we were different people who spoke different languages and ate interesting foods, but we were all Americans. Love that. Love that, too, because I was thinking last night he probably was about the first regular uh latin yes. face as was maria right um shown in a positive light on tv yeah yes. like I, I there was a show called chico and the man is really old right gordon yeah. and and i was like that you saw black characters too like there and i like that there was sanford and son the jeffersons i were they caricaturesque a little bit i yeah. mean the, you know but but it, I love those shows. And Sesame Street laid that out. In fact, people are t- reminding me today, uh, Buffy St. Marie was on. So I got two two yes. sort of runways for Sesame Street. When, you, when you're a little kid, and then for about five years when you're a parent, your two kids are into it. But by then, Buffy St. Marie's not on, or Luis is not on, or Maria's not on. They, br- they bring in new people, which I guess they can do. But Sheba, like, I remember, like, Gordon, Luis, Gordon was the bald yes. black guy. Luis, Maria, Maria. Maria, yes, yeah, and uh, and I'm trying to think of the other ones. And Gordon, you remembered uh, Mr. Hooper, who actually passed away in 19. 19- he was like he ran the grocery store, and he died yeah. in 1982. And that was like that was sort of an introduction to kind of death on Sesame Street. They didn't talk about that quite as much before that. No, there's a great documentary about the whole history of Sesame Street, and that there's a little chunk of it how they did that, and they used Big Bird as, you know, like the innocence of a child asking about where's Mr. Hooper, and they had mm. to explain that to them, or to him, and then uh, that's how they got it across in, in, in like a real way, but for children to understand. Oh, that's uh, that's emotional, yeah, the uh, Mr. Now, we should point out, Big Bird was not, he the Snuffleupagus thing, like you've got to, he wasn't what? the swiftest bird in the nest, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, what Mr. Not, I love Mr. Snuffleupagus. Yeah. Come, well, you, you can, to say, but, but the fact that adults and I, I think the concept is it's a figment of still of Big Bird's imagination. So, so many children have, you know, imaginary uh, friends. Right. But at a certain point off the show, like, let's like, you know, let's get him some therapy. Shiba, you, you, you know, you <laughs> proclaim mental health. So let's can we get Big Bird at least I a couple sessions needs, with somebody? I don't think he. Well, I think everybody needs therapy, but I don't think anything was wrong with his mental health. Big Bird. Yeah. Uh, Linda on the show as well. Linda was deaf 
And I yes. remember oh, thinking right. that, yes. that I've never, you know, using sign language. And it w- I, I, like, again, I, we, we kid around on the show a lot. We take a little like pokes here, the pokes there at each other. But I'm telling you, like, that's where you go. OK, they're th- like that person cannot hear, but they can communicate. They ha- this is what the, they have likes and dislikes. Like when you're five or six, you don't know. Like you see different people doing different things. You're going to stare the first time you see somebody in a wheelchair. Like, are we having a real conversation or not? And, and Sesame Street was awesome at breaking down those sort of barriers and stereotypes. It really was. Yeah, I agree with you. That was great. But, you know, my kids never got into Sesame Street. I tried. I tried, but they were just, they'd rather, you know, now they've got Netflix and they've got the Paw Patrol, all these flashy shows. So I think they were just distracted by those as opposed to, you know, the original, the OG. They, uh, yeah, because when I came back around, oh gosh, there was somebody else who ran, Alan. Alan became the proprietor of Hooper's store and he was, uh, he's of Asian origin and warm, welcoming guy, but he didn't have the gruffness of Mr. Mr. Hooper, you were worried would yell at you if you dropped like a peanut butter jar <laughs> or something right. like that. I hadn't checked in, the, in recently, but did Luis... I'm surprised they have I'll check it out later today. Had uh, Luis ever finished fixing the radio that he was working on? I know. you're. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually here in engineering just behind us. Jason and Juan are uh, tearing it apart right now. They've got your set of headphones also that you dropped off seven oh, right. weeks ago. No, they're on uh, They're on top of it. But yeah, what a, what a mix of... We're getting his, uh, like, Sesame Street Texan. I want to read that one. The uh, Oh, gosh, I just lost it. Um, the one about... Uh, the person watched it when they were, yeah, my Christmas Eve tradition from the time I was three was to watch Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. I still know all the sign language um, for Keep Christmas With You. That's the song. I'm now 48 years old. R.I.P. Luis. Oh, lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Emilio uh, Delgado. Hey, thanks so much for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show on Monday, March the 14th, heading into your March break week. But we will be here all week long, whether you're commuting or not. So check out the podcast where you're listening to us right now. Feel free to share with a friend. We love that, spreading uh, what we do as far and wide as we can. Thanks again for listening. Have a great weekend.